0: Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for human factors, psychology, and design. Hi, everyone.
1: It's episode 253. We're recording this live on August 4th. How is it August already? 2022. This is Human Factors Cast. I'm your host, Nick Rome. I'm joined today by Mr. Barry Kirby. Hey there. Good evening. What an intro. Uh, We got a great show for you tonight. (laughs) We're going to be talking about how to categorize conversational interfaces. Riveting. Uh, We also answer some questions from the community about human factors engineering being considered design, how to run concept testing that isn't worthless, and we'll cover some insights from the UXPA salary report. But first, got a couple programming notes for y'all. I don't know if y'all noticed, but we did last week post our interview, or my interview, with uh, Joe Keebler, who's the chair of the International Symposium on Human Factors and in Ergonomics in Healthcare. In addition to that coverage, we also wrapped up in a nice little bow a couple of extra things for you. So we also did a, a trend alert on evaluating and improving complex medical device systems, as well as four themes uh, that are emerging in Human Factors and Healthcare from the symposium this year we've also posted a roundup on our blog all this stuff is available to you it'll be in the show notes of this episode thank you huge thank you to our digital media lab for going out covering the event huge thank you to Joe Keebler for you know sitting down with me and taking the time and also thank you to HFES for providing access Barry you've been busy over at 1202 you want to talk about the latest over there yeah,
2: absolutely. So over in twelve oh two, we've been looking back at the, the rail sector. So I've had an interview with Nora Balf, who is the human factors lead in Irish Rail. And so Irish Rail has its own uh share of human factors challenges. And really Nora gave us a real insight into the um the real practicalities um of of what that uh what what um, applying human factors on in a real world scenario really looks like. So she's given us a real insight into not only the breadth of what she gets up to, but really the depth. And she talks a lot about um, so the, the real nitpicky things that really makes her day um, uh, role of what she really deals with. So really, really interesting and, and really good. I encourage everybody to go and listen to that. And then we've got some really interesting topics coming up as well to do with... Um, um, to do with actually um, publishing in the hf domain which is going to be fantastic um as well as um a whole range of other things coming up so we've been i've been busy i've been doing some recording and i've actually got about a month and a half ahead in terms of content which is rare for me because normally i'm i'm a week by week type of guy so yeah get up, come on down and listen to what we've got
1: all right thank you for that overview barry uh, let's go ahead and get into the news That's right, this is the part of the show all about uh, human factors news. Uh, Barry, what's our story this week? So our story this week is all about how we're going to categorize
2: conversational interfaces. The main drive of this article is to develop the conversational interface taxonomy from an interaction perspective. We've been using conversations with technology on an ever-increasing basis, from chatbots to smart speakers But have you ever stopped to think about how the different methods of how that conversation is constructed and how that defines your relationship with the technology that you're using? As in every new industry, there's a lot of discussion in the conversation ecosystem about the right terms we should be using to talk about that work. That discussion will probably keep evolving for ages about when to use assistant versus agent and probably with very little progress, it'll go back and forth. However, establishing categories that help us differentiate interfaces is not that problematic as part of the introduction to conversational interface design course. The author has documented the taxonomy that they use to categorize and differentiate the different interfaces we find in the conversational world. So this approach is based on the things that have an impact on the user agent interaction. The author also adds some examples to make sure that we are all on the same page. So Nick, what are your thoughts?
1: On how we converse
2: are you an agent or am i your assistant
1: we're both agents we're both assistants how about that uh we'll see how the audio does tonight um (laughs) apparently there's some live audio issues uh but uh, for me i think um this story is interesting because it takes a different approach it's looking at it from the user perspective uh, in terms of the way in which we are interacting with these digital agents and we've done a lot of skirting around digital agents over the last i don't know couple episodes there's been some talk about uh you know robots in old folks homes and we're going to bring up that story it's a good tie over I, I think um this is some good foundational ways to think about it barry what are your thoughts
2: yeah and i absolutely agree i think this is one of them stories we we sort of have them occasionally don't be Where it's uh it's almost a back to basics Thing and we, with the evolution of smart speakers, um, chatbots, all, all that type of thing, we, sp- we, I think we now largely take for granted just the sort of conversations, the interactions that we have with them, and as they naturally progress to be more naturalistic, then we sort of just assume that they understand everything that, that we're talking about. Um, whereas actually, we we do need to get back to basics a bit more. Having been playing around with chatbots and things for a while, you sort of. You kind of forget that a lot of them are based on actually fairly simplistic decision trees um, and things like that. And uh, with the emple- implementation of AI and more going to gen- uh, you know, a- artificial general intelligence and things, this is got to be some fundamental stuff to help us work with. But what I do like is actually the way you-, you described it as well, is that this feels like it's one of the first that's been put in front of uh, the users has been put in, f- in the front of the conversation not you know about so that it's actually been a
1: user focused development which which we're all fans of here on in the human factors world yeah we all, we all like it when the human is uh, at the center of things uh, so i think a good way to go about this might be to talk about the category uh, that that this author at least uh, talks about here and then talk about the human factors application to that category so maybe we can just trade off here the first one here is uh, communicative freedom Right. And this is basically the capability for users to use their own words when interacting with an agent. And so, you know, some examples of this might be um, like natural language processing, like speaking to, um, I don't know, speaking to a digital agent. uh, When you you say activate the wake word, I don't want to say it to activate anybody's devices, but there are certain Amazon devices and Google devices that are in everybody's homes that if you say certain key terms they wake up uh, and then you can ask them things and it will try to process the way that you are asking it through your natural language there's also sort of the um, there, there's also that approach but from a text based approach where you're um, typing in I want to do X right and you are typing that in and it is parsing your sentence and that is natural language processing the other half of that piece is kind of the the bit with. Um, choosing a response to a prompt that they give you, right? And and this is more like click a button, right? You know, what would you like to do? And the options are A, B, and C, and you press one of those options. It then populates the conversation with that option. It understands it because it is a direct input that is exactly what it was looking for, and therefore it could move forward with that conversation.
2: Yeah, yeah, it is really, I mean, just to jump, jump in on that one, it really sh- shows us we naturally think that we want to go down that natural language processing route, because we sit there. We even if you're using some sort of wake word um, to to get its attention effectively, we we don't want to necessarily um, have to train ourselves on how we interact with this technology. And this sort of falls into that human factors paradigm of training, of when you sort of sit there and say, if you if you have to teach people how to use this type of technology. Then you're almost getting away from the effectiveness of the technology. So when we've talked about the different people who might use this, so the el- the elderly, for example, in in the current domain, um, we want them to we want this sort of thing to be able to sat there and they just talk with the device, um, which links back to the one of the previous episodes that we've done. Um, we don't want them to have to worry about how they pass their syntax together um, and and putting their structure in a certain way in order to get get a result. So we want to go down that route, but there are elements there where we actually want to have quite a tight control on how that syntax is put together. So, if you're if you're delivering commands in, say, um, a fighter jet or something that has audio controls, you don't necessarily want a too much natural uh, natural language processing. You want to deliver commands and get it to be done in in a certain way. Um, because you might say other things that it you, you don't want to have an accidental le- like we nearly just did with um saying the wake word, um, you don't want to have that going off at the at the wrong time, do you?
1: Yeah, they they must be intentional, and I, I I'll add to that too. There's benefits to having those prompts for you uh, listed out, right? And I think the biggest thing for me is sort of this recognition versus recall piece of. You know human factors 101 you sort of have uh, the recognition of these prompts that are coming through the written written language or the button prompts and then you have the natural language processing is where you have to recall the command in a lot of cases unless you ask the computer for a command to give you so that way you know what your options are and so when you're looking at that recall nature of it you're you're also looking at um the possibility of not knowing everything thats that you're able to do from a user perspective versus, you know, knowing what you're able to do with the options being finite in the click a button perspective. Anything else on this one, Barry?
2: Yeah, I guess just to highlight the example of where that is really prevalent in everybody's use at the moment. So if you have one of these uh, smart speakers and you put skills onto it, it's quite often you can forget what skills you put onto it because it's not obvious there's, there's the speaker there, you don't have a prompt. And particularly with some of the more fun skills you can get. So I know for a fact on hours, you've got the ability to do the automatic self-destruct like you have on, on Star Trek, on on Star Trek craft. And if you put in the right, if you give it the right right command and a certain code, it'll then go down the you know, 30 seconds, 20 seconds and do a whole explosion thing. Which is really cool, and it'll fire photon torpedoes and all that sort of jazz, which is really great, but I keep forgetting about it. and so unless you know it's there, then you don't use it. and so that's a silly, almost a, a frivolous example, of, but if you've got key functions that you forget you can do just because it's not um, you're not prompted to do so, then that shows you know that you do need a bit more alongside that. Should I yeah. dive into you want to take
1: us Yeah, take us through uh, the next one here. So the next
2: one is really looking at that type of interaction that you have. So how that how the users physically interact with the medium on which that's taking place. So we've already talked around sort of smart speakers, which are largely voice um, activated, so you can have that um, pure voice in interfaces, text based interfaces, so chat bots, uh, things like that. Um, so where you're typing in in the answers, and then you can get some ones that are sort of multimodal and, and use mixtures of both and um, other bits as well. So it's not only not only smart speakers that use the voice interfaces. If you've now, it's very popular when you go and ring, um, say some sort some sort of service supplier or something like that. You will um, go through. You will have a, a basically a bot at the end of it asking you questions to try and get you to a resolution without actually having to go to a live assistant. Um, equally on your text-based chat. You can either have quite an open chat or it will be a structured um structured approach to try and get you to some sort of resolution and really, with a lot of these, what they're trying to get to is is the um not to have to use live people to to come up with a resolution, so let's see if they can use what is in known by the system um to to get there so I've not seen and I can't think of an example where you use both voice and text at the same time um it's can you to that. brilliant yeah Let's please because i can't think of one
1: so so there are actually in fact some of these in-home smart devices that use those wake words that have screens attached to them as well and a lot of times if you ask it something uh it will then respond with what would you like to do right and it will give you those options available as potential prompts you could still ask it something else but it could show those prompts on the screen you could interact with it on that on that Good area sense. and so 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 basically what we're talking about here is is uh redundancy of information uh, redundancy of communication when it comes to the user perspective right because you are then getting it in multiple um, multiple modes you're you're either looking at the response and hearing it at the same time and y- there's less ambiguity about what the computer said in that moment, uh, that agent, that chatbot, whatever you want to call it, there's less ambiguity because you're able to read what their response is in addition to hearing the response. When you have those paired together, there's much higher accuracy. And so, you know, I don't know if you have sort of readouts on HUDs in fighter jets, but that might be another application of that if the computer is reciting something and there's sort of that information available then that that would be another example of that multimodal Uh, and really what we're talking about here is just the ability to interact that way and so what that looks like is literally just a button on a screen that if they are presenting those response options that's what it looks like Uh, for me i think this is this is one of the like basic basic levels like what how are you interacting with it because there could be potential other ways that are not listed here that you could interact with something. Um, Take, for example, someone who speaks ASL. Um, Are there gestural-based approaches to this type of interaction? Maybe not a lot of them today, but someday it could be a reality. And those, um, there's going to be sort of this whole human factors communication issue of what the ambiguity around some of those um, signs, and the intent behind those signs, because I know a lot of them can mean different things based on context, where they're located in relation to uh, your body, to your face, all those things. And so will a system be uh, eventually we'll get to the point where systems are complex enough to understand those. But that is another type of interface where you have these gesture- based responses. Um, and I'd imagine there's <laughs> at least that's that's reading the user's input. I don't know how they would communicate back. They might just, you know, provide some text on a screen. There might also be a robot doing that. But then, like, what does that mean? Right. And so there's. (laughs) Go ahead. You could have that um, the robot doing
2: it all just an animated. Or set of hands, it'd be in theory. I don't think it should be that difficult to do, but it's how lifelike you could make it. So it looks natural to have that conversation. I think that could be fascinating to see because if they got that <laughs> right. well but if they got it so where we where you normally have somebody doing translation of speeches live and things like that um in um in SL then why that could be almost a, an automated service in fact thankfully nobody will be listening uh, right now we could just quickly go away patent that um we'll get the design done and nobody will worry about it U.S. D- D- office. There you go. <laughs> uh, you're right because there's them. There's. I mean, I wonder how then you deal a lot with because we we a lot of the conversations you have now are very much of the um very this sort of transactional. We'll we'll and we'll get get onto that in a bit bit. But then, how do you deal with um you know di- different people's colloquialisms and and things like that? um Because they add it, it's almost some um, people from different areas have uh, such local words that how do you deal with the errors alongside that? I don't yeah, know. localization I don't know dialect. Yeah, um, that that type of thing. Um, because it, it's going to need such a large knowledge bank to make that happen. Um,
1: but I guess that that again, that's just evolution of technology, isn't it? Yeah, I, I'm going to jump into this next one unless you have any other points for for sort of the type of interaction. Oh, go for it. So let's get into uh, this next category here, which is domain of knowledge. And really, this is kind of getting at what the assistant can or cannot do in relation to everything. So to break this down further, you kind of have a specialty that this agent could do. And then you also have those ones that are more general Uh, and and. The difference could be sort of uh, illustrated by if you use a dedicated customer service uh, app for any service, it's going to know finite information about that service. It's going to give you information that is relevant to that service. It's not going to have what's the weather like in my part of the world today. Uh, That is more of a generalist type of perspective, right? This is um, scope can be unlimited, although sometimes... The the information returned is maybe less uh, of a lesser fidelity, let's say, than than someone like a like some agent, like a specialist might be, right? So you have sort of a specialist who knows every single thing about that topic, being customer service for whatever you want to say right Uh, customer service for human factors cast our customer service bot knows every single thing you need to know about the podcast where to find all our blog posts where to find all our episodes what episodes we've done. But if you were to ask another general one that you might have in your home right now they might you know pull something incorrectly if you were to ask them about AI or chat bots or something like that right. Uh, And so that's kind of the difference Barry you want to jump into any of the human factors implications here. Yeah,
2: so there's some interesting bits around um, understanding the scope of what what the uh, what this conversation is about. Um, so, as you say, with the specialist piece, that gives you a lot. That gives you defined boundaries. You know, you're going to talk about that. There's nothing that can be taken in in the abstract sense, um, or in theory, there's nothing that can be taken in the abstract sense. Um, it should all be focused around that subject, which would work for as you. Quite rightly say a whole host of applications um, that we we're even talking about things like you know um, artificial mentors um, or AI mentors and and that type of thing. It's all going to be focused around that area, so that would work, but it won't work in every scenario. So we've talked on um, previous episodes about using artificial intelligence to to provide companionship um, to both elderly people, and uh, we've we've had our AI girlfriends now. Um, you know, to, to provide to provide that general level of um, chat and discussion, and the AI is involved in them and will take a broad variety of um, of input and be able to recognise the context and, and have them sort of conversations. But then, I guess the from a um, a safety perspective, we've got to be able to define the scope of what the um, of what the consequences are. So you don't ideally do you want a generalist uh, discussion um, agent um, or assistant to be able to do safety critical um, applications or safety critical actions based on a general conversation, or would you want it nice and tightly scoped around a specialist approach? I suggest. The latter, rather than the former, you want it mm-hmm. nice and tightly scoped. But for if you, but if you're sat there and you just want a bit of a general conversation, what's the weather like? What, how am I doing this? Um, when's the bus coming? Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera, that's more generalist because the consequences are not so
1: dramatic if it, if it picks up on the wrong keywords. Yeah, or other casual conversations like, "Are you sentient? Do you have feelings?" Um, so, <laughs> hinting at another story that we did. So. Yes, you're right. There's there's sort of um, applications for both. It really is an it depends situation when you need to use a specialist versus a generalist. And I think in a lot of cases, we will know which one we're talking to based on the context in which we are operating. However, I think there are some certain circumstances where you might not be aware that you're talking to a specialist versus a generalist. And so there's going to be some sort of, I guess, indication that's needed to the end user that indicates what you are talking to. Right. If you ask a specialist what the weather is like today, it'll say, sorry, I don't understand that input um, in so many words. But then that would be the context for you to say, "Okay, well, maybe it's not a generalist. Maybe it knows more specific knowledge. And I think A lot of times you do have that context it's explained to you right up front hi my name is clippy i'm here to help you with microsoft word uh and so you you know you don't have uh you know clippy's not going to know the weather he's going to know what formatting things to help you with and so it's just a consideration i think for the most part we're good on that i think design kind of knows what they're doing with communicating to the user in terms of which one we're talking to just a consideration do you want to get into this next one? Unless you have any other thoughts on Clippy,
2: no. Well, though I do miss Clippy, Clippy was amazing.
1: Um, <laughs> he said with
2: a certain degree of sarcasm. Um, so I guess the, to get down and dirty to the engineering to this to a certain extent is where is this assistant hosted? So the ownership of the platform and the best way to describe this is when we are using the um, the 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 the, remote, the 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 smart speaker that we won't mention because we don't want to to, to start it off. But when we're using that device, most of the data that you provide it on a day-to-day basis is hosted by that company. Um, it's hosted within its servers, et cetera, et cetera, until you start using skills. And there's certain skills, obviously, there that are hosted by third parties, also developed by third parties, and the data is owned then within that third party. So from, a fa- from an interface perspective, you perhaps think, well, so what? Who cares? That why? Why should I be bothered? But when you start then looking at your privacy concerns, I mean, everybody's concerned about now about how their data is being used, um, potentially abused, but actually also how is that data being mined um, for you know in-depth knowledge about yourself and about you know uh, how the type of people that you you live with, um, and that and then how that can be used for people to make money out of. Um, we do get concerned about that. And then you get into the whole privacy concerns that you're sharing potentially quite personally sensitive data around spending, around the conversations are going on in the background and the sort of questions you're asking it. And then fundamentally again, cybersecurity, when you're picking up the, the issues around um, you know, could could your devices be hacked, could your information be leaked, depending on where these smart devices are as well. So Whilst it seems a very boring thing compared to some of the other things we talk about, there is some specific human factors engineering there that a, that we need to make users aware of. Um, where is that data being hosted? Where how is it being hosted? And make sure they're buying into um, the potential risks, because because I think that's possibly a strong weakness that we have now um, in the current development of evolution. When you're using skills, when you know in when you can't see the differences, it's not as obvious. When it's written down generally you can see one web page will take you to to another web page and so then it will bring up another bot or it there is more of an onus to say when you input this data that this data is going to be shared with so in the obviously in the eu we have gdpr rules um and the, there is an onus there to tell you that this information is being shared with third parties and where this data is being stored etc cetera, etc cetera. um but with the audio versions of this, well, it's not easy just to put the small print on there, is it? It's it's, it's a
1: single channel of communication. You can't, you can't just lose it. Right. What and with, f- with that, well, with the audio version, like how do you communicate to people who, I mean, you could do all that stuff at setup, right? You could do the GDPR sort mm-hmm. of when, you know, this system will provide access to X, Y, and Z. Do you agree? Yes. Right. And so you could do that at the beginning, but... If there's somebody else in your home that is giving them commands that wasn't around at setup, like, I don't know, your wife, your child, your husband, your friend that comes over, like there's a lot of different scenarios in which they may not be aware of what's being collected on them. And it's like for this to work responsibly, you can't necessarily do that or or you'd have to do that for each one. And that's not practical. That no one would use them if you had to do that every time. Yes, I agree. And so to get around that, some of these companies have implemented standards and best practices and reviews by which they go through in order to get them on their platforms. We're talking about the Amazon one in this case and and Google uh, as well. They have standards that allow them uh, before. But you also don't have some of that if you do like a homebrew one. If you made your own skill and launched it on your own one at home, there's no review for that because you're testing it in your own home. And so it's up to you, the person, to communicate that information to whoever else might be using it. And that is where it gets a little tricky, right? You build a skill to collect information on the people that you live with or you build a skill that, I don't know, I built a skill that was would search through our episodes at, at one point. But I mean, like, there's no real privacy concerns. with that. So so, I mean, you know, there is uh, sort of the understanding that you need to have that information communicated. And I don't know where else we go from here other than is a huge cybersecurity issue. Data is really important. And let's keep having that conversation and build into law uh, ways to protect us from that type of abuse. Um, I'm going to get into this next one here. This is kind of the conversation initiative. Uh, which is really looking at who is playing the different roles when we're taking turns in a conversation. And so if you think about this, it could be uh sort of the reactive versus proactive type of assistant. You have somebody who's reacting to something that you have said. This is an assistant where you say wake word wake word. I would like to uh, have a sandwich delivered to my house. Um, And so then it will say, okay, from where, what would you like on it? Right. And it is reactive to your command. Then you have a proactive uh, thing where it's kind of giving you options ahead of time based on, I don't know, context, but you are not initiating that conversation. This is very much like when you visit a website and say, hi, my name is Whatever, I'm a bot here to help you out. Is there anything that we can help you out with? That is one of those sort of proactive situations. And so there's very different instances in which you might want to use both of those. A proactive one would be a very good thing to have when you don't know that something is present. If you can't see that there is sort of a uh, a device that is collecting your information, you might want to say, hey, did you know that you could do this? Uh, and so that might be one Instance, right? The, the reactive is also one of those interesting ones where if you just spout something out and you didn't know something was listening and it reacts to that, then that's a very different sort of situation. <laughs> I don't know, Barry, Barry, what are your thoughts on this conversation initiative? No,
2: there's a this almost for me gets to the heart of where these conversations go, where this conversation technology is, is driving, because at the moment we are very set on wake words and, and then delivering commands but actually in and we have spoken about this before and there's going to be environments where we want a bit of proactiveness we want a bit of um nudging we want a bit of um understanding about where we go so in the healthcare domain um particularly with say with elderly people where we've talked about loneliness you know at certain times of the day we want the um the, the the speaker, the, the the system to just pipe up and say, Well, how are you? What what are you doing? Uh, um, how are you feeling today? Uh, have you taken your meds? You know, that, you know, that, them sort of things about helping um, you provide prompts and understanding what's going on. And if we get it to the point where it's a good or much better in a contextual nature, so using, you know, you, we now get the doorbells with the cameras in. And so actually, given a really good, um, warning of there's somebody about to come to your door it looks like um like grocery delivery um you may want to start getting up now because if you're infirm you might want to start get, getting up now or start putting a putting a, a warning out there that you are coming to the door we just need you just need to take a bit of time and so starting putting some of these technologies together and, and making them really work it's going to be quite interesting to see how this this goes out because this um it's this idea about um is it an assistant or is it an agent? Is it something that is there to be told what to do, or is it something to be collaborative? Which really gets to the heart of what the initial um, article was was trying to get to. So, it, I guess this idea kind of gets get really
1: gets to the heart of that. Is there anything else you've got to say around around this, or do, should we jump into the next one? If this is the heart, then no, I don't have anything. No, I do. I do have just a couple points that I think can be tied into some of the other stuff that we're going to be talking about here, and maybe we skip over a lot of the detail of the next couple uh, just for time. But the one point I'll make here in terms of conversation initiative, you did mention that sort of in some certain stances, I, I, I do want to mention that this is healthcare application. This is the loneliness. This is suggesting people getting care when perhaps they uh, they need it. I'm not going to rehash that whole argument. Go listen to that episode if you'd like. Um, but that is one application. We can think about that application as a term uh, as it relates to goals as well, which is kind of the next category. And this is kind of the focus of the conversation here. Um, when you think about goals, you're really looking at sort of transactional experiences or relational experiences. And these can be kind of uh, like an example might be. Um, the, the goal is to get something done right let's get you concert tickets let's get you a sandwich delivered to your house let's get you X y and z uh, versus a relational thing is is very much that agent side of things where you're looking at uh, those AI girlfriends they actually bring this up in the article right here uh replica is the software that that is that uh was that story on and and so um that is kind of that relational Uh, interface or that relational goal that that they have there as well um and so really with that the conversation is the goal and so that's that's kind of getting at really the last point as well but do you want to do any points on on the goal before we get into this last point
2: no i think the you've um nicely wrapped that up really well i think the the last point around it's very similar. It's around the depth of the conversation that you're expecting to have. Are you expecting to have something deep and meaningful or is it just a simple... um I'm adding a bit of direction. So they classify it as a single turn. So it is basically, you, you say, switch the lights on. Okay, lights go on. Brilliant, job done. Or are you having to take multiple steps to derive enough information in order for something to happen? So uh, to use the example you mentioned earlier, I want to order this shopping. What do you want to on your shopping list? I want this on the shopping list. When do you want it delivered? I want to deliver it then. Okay, great, it's ordered. Thank you very much. So you're going through that multi-step approach. So I think a lot of these things now will probably be an element of multi-turn, um, particularly if you're going to that conversational approach. But I think, yeah, it's it's still an interesting thing to uh, work out and and for the engineering of it, really.
1: Yeah, I, I will say with that multi-turn, uh, there there are going to be some human factors issues around remembering what you've communicated to the system and sort of what the what the system knows about you in order to complete that task goal, whatever it is that you're looking at. And so that's just something that we might have to communicate. Reminder, you've already told me X, Y and Z. Right. So like mm. that's another consideration. There's a bunch more in our notes, Barry. <laughs> but once again, we've kind of done the thing where we thought ah, we won't have much to talk about. And here we are at almost time. So. Let's any other closing thoughts on this before we get out of here. So I guess the thing that I, I
2: I, I was going to this, I'm very boring, but what about things like failure cases? How, how is that going to be communicated when it's gone out of, gone out of scope for what the conversation is that you're expecting to have? More likely in a, um, a a general generalist sense, um, because the system thinks it's in one part of a decision tree. You're talking about something completely different, like being married, perhaps. Um, you know the how how's that going to deal with? But I think that will we do cover that on some other um, uh, some other episodes. So go and listen to some of them and, and
1: hear about some of the thoughts on there. Nick, what about yourself? Have you got any final uh, final things to play with? I do. There's there's one more point that I want to bring up that is kind of a, a key key concern when you think about these text-based chatbots. And really, that's how do you make sure that someone knows that they're talking to a chatbot and not a human? As these systems get more advanced, there's going to be more natural language used in them, and we're they're going to be able to understand natural language a lot more efficiently than they do now. And so there's going to be a need to communicate to the person interacting with it that you are not indeed talking to customer service you're talking to a chat bot and so that's just one last point that I'll bring up there's a bunch other in here that we can talk about in the post show but we'll get to that when we get to that Uh, thank huge thank you as always to our patrons for selecting our topic. And a huge thank you over to our friends over at UX Collective for our news story this week. If you want to follow along, we do post the links to the original articles on our weekly roundups and our blog. You can also join us on Discord for more discussion about these stories and much more. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back to see what's going on in the Human Factors community right after
0: this. Human Factors Cast brings you the best in Human Factors news, interviews, conference coverage, and overall fun conversations into each and every episode we produce. But we can't do it without you. The Human Factors Cast Network is 100% listener supported. All the funds that go into running the show come from our listeners. Our patrons are our priority, and we want to ensure we're giving back to you for supporting us.
1: Yes, huge thank you, as always, to our patrons. We especially want to thank our honorary Human Factors cast staff patron, Michelle Tripp. Uh, we have a couple extra notes here. Did you know that we have a merch store? This is written by our treasurer. Uh, did you know that we have a merch store? Some neat designs over there that include It Depends shirts, the show logo on hoodies like I'm not wearing tonight. It's hot. It's summer. Why would you write that? Uh, other cool designs. There we go. That's summary. Uh, based on in human factors culture like I'm going to human factors the uh, beep out of this uh, if you want to sh- if you want to support the show look good doing it we do have a merch store and you can always do things over there uh, Our pride logos on there too which is actually really cool and forever all proceeds of that will go towards the Trevor project so let's get into this last part of the show uh, that we like to call that came from it came from Let's switch gears, get to it came from. This is the part of the show where we search all over the internet to bring you topics that the community is talking about. Anything is fair game. Uh, if you find any of these answers useful, give us a like wherever you're watching or listening to help other people find this stuff. We got 3 tonight. First one up here is by uh, Emma Anderesa Emma Ander Ika. Emma Anderica, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Butchered that. Uh, they say, "Is human factors engineering design?" I currently work in UX and love the design aspect, but I'm interested in getting away from purely digital experiences. Is human factors engineering about just evaluation and research, or do human factors engineers design as well? P.S. I'm still early on in my UX career. Forgive me if uh, for any lack of understanding. Barry, in your opinion. Is human factors engineering design or do you do design in human factors engineering? Oh, we do it all. So yes, you get, you get in human factors engineering
2: side is very much the, the the physical component as much as the digital component. it isn't all just UI and, and uh, fancy groupings of nice bits of text. It's about the, um that that hard element you know can where is it can you reach it can is it too heavy is it too light is it big enough to does it have the right hand grips is it a two-person lift is it um s- situated at the right anthropometric uh, place to admit for the anthropometr- anthropometrics of the user that's easy for everyone else to say um yeah it's you get involved in literally everything that you possibly want to um as, and then you've also got the, it's not just the physical aspects. You've, if you project management is your thing that that gets involved into it as well, because it's how you schedule, how you engage with um, project teams. It's how you um, encourage software engineers, hardware engineers, and every other type of engineer that uh, the users are a thing. And they should be considered in all aspects of what they're doing. So human practice engineering is the coolest place to be. None of this UX nonsense. No, you, engineering is, is,
1: Yeah. So did did I sell it well enough? Was that good? You sold it. You sold it, Barry. I think so. So yes, uh, it is. However, I can see where there's sort of a disconnect. In some places, they will separate the research from the design, and that's okay. That's how those companies operate. I will say, uh, in in those instances, that you're still at least providing recommendations that are based in the research that would ultimately lead to decisions and design. So even if you're not sitting there and pushing pixels, you are still providing recommendations that ultimately will make it into the design. That is, I think where this separation is coming, but yes, there's a whole subfield. field. Ergonomics is like a, in my mind, ergonomics and human factors live at the same level. It's all the same thing. You're just doing it in different domains. Ergonomics is all about that in in terms of the physical aspect of it. I mean, you're right. You could do user research, um, but then you also need to provide those recommendations for the physical aspect of things as well. So you need to be able to say, like Barry said, he just listed off a bunch of them, hand grips. One person lift, two person lift. I'm not going to go through that list again, but you you see where even these recommendations are going to provide some baseline for how a thing is going to be used. and. I liked I like to think about human factors engineers as jack of all master of none um but you know what's the full saying i forget anyway it's a uh, it's definitely you are using a multitude of skills to get to some outcome that ultimately is in the user's best interest that is sort of the baseline and if that means that you can communicate your thoughts your recommendations through a design then go for it. I think it's all part of the same thing. I don't know. So did I sell it? I think you did. I think. But it does raise a really
2: good point that we should maybe pick up on post show or something like that. That um, that a lot of people think now a uh, Human Fact because the evolution of, the, of digital interfaces, etc., that HF and UX is all just about websites and um, apps and things like and phone apps and things like that. And it's not. It's it's about everything, not just that. And we
1: should maybe get into that. Yeah, I, I will just say the full quote: "A jack of all trades is a master of none, but oftentimes a better than a master of one." Okay, that's it. Uh, oh. l- let's get into this next one here. This one is uh, by Choice Ad nine six eight on <laughs> UX Research subreddit. They say how to run a uh, uh, how to run concept testing that isn't worthless. Hey, all. For a while now, I've been running frequent concept tests for my company. Our goal is usually to evaluate the desirability of a concept. A uh, a session tends to look like this brief interview, gather information about the problem space, uh, followed by me showing sketches of storyboards narrating concept, sometimes even prototypes. Then after we're done, they're acquainted with the concept, I ask them things like, what are your first impressions? What do you think of this? Rinse and repeat with a couple concepts until the next session. However, uh, I'm painly, painfully aware that opinions are not strong evidence. Um, the participants saying "I love this" isn't necessarily indicative of what they would actually like to use, buy, or recommend. Plus, we know that participants usually struggle to be completely honest if they believe their answers might hurt the rapport with the researcher. Um, so, any any advices or resources you could point me to? How do you how do you run concept tests? Well,
2: it's like for me. Well, so for the type of uh, engagement they're describing actually yes in if you read the literature that type of approach will be panned and is regularly but the only reason it's panned actually if you for the for the type of goal that they've um outlined what they're doing is actually what i would probably do you get some you're asking general questions so what are you going to get you some general answers um if you're just wanting that warm fuzzy feel or uh, and the i sort of call it the aura of the project of the product You ask some general questions and you get some stuff back. What you're missing is the fact that you don't know what it is you're asking and what it is you're trying to pin down. So, if you've got your the main reason to conduct um, engagement testing and things like that is you either want um, affirmation, uh, confirmation that what you're doing is the right way. So you can actually, you will, you should have an idea about the type of elements that you're concerned about. Hone in on them. Make sure we get some get some answers about out of them. I um, ask uh, more pointy questions, but spend some time making sure that the questions are the right ones. On the other on the fa- on the other end of the scale is rather than just asking um, generic questions, get some measures involved. How are you measuring it? How are you go- how are you measuring success? Um, you might want to go down some. Um, you know some mental workload testing or t- something depending on the type on the type of thing that you're trying to do um but that but again if you're using say mental workload testing then that means you've got an issue you' you've got a concern or an issue or you want to confirm that the the amount of mental workload isn't um it is, isn't becoming too much for the user you need to focus what you're doing you need to know what it why you're asking the question in the first place and then you'll be able to um, get better answers what do you think Nick Yeah.
1: Yeah. About that. Um, I, I, what you said, I think (laughs) there's the questions that you're asking are sort of, to me, the baseline questions that you should have asked before you came here. Um, like you would, you should know what they, what they will think of this because you've analyzed their workflow and have identified the gaps in that workflow. And therefore this concept that you are then presenting should patch some gap or fix some workflow that needs work. That's how I view it. At least when I look at uh, concept testing, you could also think of it as an entirely new sector of uh, a domain or something that you're looking at that you genu- generally don't have any knowledge of. And if that's the case, then you shouldn't be bringing concepts in terms of like, I don't know, It it seems like prototypes is is something that they mentioned, sketches, storyboards shouldn't be bringing any of that. It should be more general in nature to figure out if this is even something that you should move forward with the sketches or storyboards to begin with. Um, And so to me, yes, it's more broad in nature when you're looking at a new sector. But if you have done sort of some preliminary research like that broad investigation, you should know what generally they will think of it. And so then you're more looking at, I don't know, like a usability test or something, Um, and so the other point I'll make is that, yes, Barry, you, you mentioned that there's measurements involved, uh, a lot of times you should bring some measurements. Um, (laughs) I think that is, that is a good way to get some objective feedback, send it out to a lot of people, see, you know, what people are thinking about in terms of where to go in sectors. I don't know. There's a bunch of different ways to go about it. And uh, I, I unfortunately don't think that this is the right way. I think this is um, y- you get it the workflow first before you start asking for feedback on concepts uh, because ideally it should patch that workflow. Any other closing thoughts? I feel like I was a little harsh there. I, I f- so yes
2: and no. I mean, it, it is one of these things. You, it, it is tempting to go down the concept phase early and think that you need to get um, really deep into it. Cause, but as you say, if you're, you should be presenting more than one concept, um, and particularly, I mean, I do this a lot if I'm in in a new domain, if I'm if I'm uncomfortable, because I I sometimes just going in and doing and doing a discovery where you're, you know, tell me tell me about everything. You're generally going to do a discover what I, in my experience I do a discovery phase, and then I'll come back with some concepts to like say patch some holes. I know that the concept are going to patch some holes because I'm quite frankly good at what I do, but what I'm trying to look at is to say right, these are the way I patch that hole, but how does that patch fit in the fit in the wider ecosystem what are the problems does that now throw up and i use it as a tool for me to better understand mm-hmm. the domain so it's a tool so i almost don't care about the concept i know my concepts are good they might not be appropriate um given the for, given this next step of conversation so <laughs> without being um yeah you you i would I, even though i sort of said you know you can use measures if you want to get something more specific i i I, w- I still wouldn't be using me- you know, heavy measures at a concept phase. Um, as such, um, I still use them as
1: exploration. But yeah, yeah. Anyway, okay. For my ego, we get to the big one. This one. So this one's a, a question that we get often. I would say behind the scenes, but we don't necessarily answer it um, enough on the show. I feel, and so this is. Somebody has posted a TLDR on uh, the user experience subreddit for UXPA salary insights. This is by WGX zero. So again, this is looking at UXPA salary insights. They say, I thought I'd pull out some interesting details from the PDF. So you don't have to really, there's no, uh, let's just go through these one by one median salary of everybody, all respondents, 109,000. Uh, This is all U.S. dollars. Maybe Barry can do the conversion. We will talk about U.K. numbers here in a second. Median salary for U.S. only is 127,000. When you're looking at the median salary of U.K., we're looking at 78,000 U.S. and 64,000 pounds. When you are looking at entry level roles, we're looking at about 75,000. When you're looking at mid-level roles, you're looking at about 128,000. Senior level roles, about 140,000 bachelor's degree versus master's degree in difference in median salary is about 5,000. Okay. That's a lot of numbers. Uh, Like I said, we'll have, we'll have the link to this TLDR in the show notes. So you can go and check out the original post for the exact numbers. Um, Hopefully if you were listening, you kind of were picking up on where you fit in all that and to see if where you're at. And I think this is really important to communicate because if, uh, if you know sort of what other people are getting paid and you know sort of what your worth is, then you are more likely to request that at your next uh, venture or even at your current venture to sort of help equalize that, um, especially for maybe folks who don't get paid uh, as much as the white male dollar. We'll just say that, Barry. What are your thoughts on this? Is this fairly accurate uh, from the UK perspective? Uh, are you moving to the US anytime soon?
2: Well, <laughs> if I could move out for, for just a salary, but come back to the UK for my healthcare and um, you know um, the, the the things that, that that we get that are quite nice, I could live with that. It's interesting because I've obviously you said that the uh, I have no idea the, the the US. That's just like sort of like play money for me um it, it's, it's dollar money um but the 64k for obviously median median salary uk it's interesting what averages you um different types of average you use because i've just done a, a quick search um around average salaries and it depends i guess to a certain extent where does human factors or going start and end because i've got so I pulled up one figure for, ex- for example, that the average human factors engineer and a salary in the UK is eighty five thousand pounds, um, or eighty five a quarter. And you're like, really? But the range it says here it goes from twenty seven thousand all the way to one hundred fifty six thousand, which is fine. So that's one, sal- one, um, view. But then another view is actually the average salary for a human factors specialist is forty four or just under forty five thousand. So there's clearly lots of numbers to be bandied around. I think the part of the problem with this in the UK is the number of human factors practitioners who class themselves as human factors practitioners is relatively small. It's We are a, a small pool of excellent people. Um, whereas you compare to other types of engineers and things like that and much bigger pools. But also where you might still consider yourself a human factors practitioner all the way through your career. So if you, go, you if you stay in that human factors domain and you go all the way up and stay within that technical craft, Then you finish as a senior manager or whatever, um, and stay in that. But if you've been a human factors practitioner, what is quite common is for a lot of people to be human factors trained, but then skew off into another domain. Um, So they're not necessarily doing human factors; they're employing human factors skills, but they've got a different title. So technically, they're not human factors practitioners anymore. But they're just really good. They've they've transferred them skills really, really well because they do transfer really well. So maybe that that affects it as well. So um, I think pointing at one, the, I have a problem with median salary. I think where where what is a really mm. good figure is the entry level, mid level, and senior roles because that gives you that they're useful numbers. So when you're going in and, p- and trying to pitch for a job, um, at least you your expectation is reasonable. Um, I've got no problem with people coming and saying, "Right, I want a job and I want 140k for even though I've only just graduated." Um, at least, at least having these out there, you, you can, you can try that. I'll, I'll say no. Um, but at least, yeah, you've given it a shot. And um, what, what the worst is possibly worse is you, you've got some really good skills and you come in and say, well, actually, I, um, I, um, I want to, I, I want a salary of 78k, but actually you're probably worth 140 or, or at that mm. level. Um, getting it right. So we do need to talk about it more. The whole Bottling down of of um, salary. It's, it's treated as a, as a as a dirty
1: discussion, and it should be. taboo. Yeah, I will say, you know the other the other piece of this puzzle that is sort of muddied, I would say, is that you have user researcher being sixty one percent of the respondents, mm-hmm. uh, and then be you know below that you have user experience designer uh, at forty five, which those numbers are already not adding up. So I don't know. where what is anyway um (laughs) so oh they were selected multiple titles okay user researcher uh user experience designer interaction designer and so i think when you like even look at the difference between research and design there's quite a difference in some cases anyway we should move on uh because we got one more thing barry this needs no introduction what is your one more thing this week so my one more thing is, um,
2: I was on holiday last week. We were on holiday last week. It was great, but a weird thing happened for me where I was um, on our first full day of camping. Normally, if I'm um, if I have a nap during the day, I can't sleep at night. You no, know, it's just, it's just it's like a law. If I fall asleep on the sofa, that's my nighttime ruined. I had that on the Wednesday. We went camping. Woke up in the morning later than I usually do, which was fantastic. I then. Had a, I was like, I feel a bit tired midday. So about 11 o'clock in, in the morning, I then had, had an hour sleep, woke up for lunch. Then about two o'clock, fell back asleep again until five, woke up, had food. And I was like, oh, well, I'm clearly not going to sleep tonight. Cause I've just, I'm not only napped once, I've napped twice. Nine o'clock I was back in bed asleep, slept through to the next day. I haven't had that since I was probably about five years old. Um, it was amazing. I had a lot of sleep that day it, and that evening. Uh, sorry, the next morning I was
1: buzzing. It was brilliant. Uh, oh, it I was wish I wish I could have your energy. Yeah. Uh, uh, let's see my one more thing this week. I got a PS five a couple of weeks back, uh, which is it's been out for like what a year and a half. And it's just been really difficult to find one uh, finally found one. And it's cool. I guess. I don't know. I, I, like I, I'm getting it for the exclusives. I think there's some other technology out there. That's probably better than it, but you know, I'm, I'm in the PlayStation ecosystem. It's fine. It's fine. Uh You're not missing much, I guess, for those who don't have it yet. Um, anyway, <laughs> I have a PS5. Add me. I don't know. Talk to me on Discord. I and that's it for today, everyone. If you like this episode and uh, enjoy some of the conversation, I guess, around uh, AI that can chat with you, I guess there's a couple things you can do, right? There's the, the episode 249. Uh, let's talk about Google sentient AI. And then there's also the one where we talked about uh, putting robots into old people's homes that was uh, 251 comment wherever you're listening with what you think of the story this week for more in-depth discussion you can always join us on our discord community follow our official website sign up for our newsletter stay up to date with all the latest human factors news if you like what you hear you want to support the show there's a couple things you can do one you can leave us a five-star review that's free for you to do two you can tell us uh, tell your friends about us that is also free for you to do if you want to throw money at us you consider supporting us on patreon That'll, uh, that'll get you access to Human Factors Minute, which is something we put a lot of time and effort into. As always, uh, links to all of our socials and our website are in the description of this episode. Mr. Barry Kirby, thank you for being on the show today. Where can our listeners go and find you if they want to talk to you about uh, getting in touch with that digital Barry Kirby you brought up a couple months ago?
2: If you want to go and talk to Digital Barry, then you can find me on Twitter at Bazin underscore K and across other social media. Or if you want to hear some, some of the interviews we've been up to that we mentioned at the top of the show, then find me at 1202 The Human Factors Podcast, which is at 1202podcast.com.
1: As for me, I've been your host, Nick Rome. You can find me on our Discord and across social media at Nick underscore Rome. Thanks again for tuning in to Human Factors Cast. Until next time, it depends. It depends. depends.